we love the Word of God here. I want to make sure you understand that. Uh, we spend the bulk of our time studying the Word of God. We believe that on Sunday morning, um, that is a time to learn and hear from the Lord. And the way that you do that is you open up your Bible and you study it. And uh, we get objective truth uh, that way through reading and studying the Word of God. And we do that through books of the Bible. Uh, we study them uh, as they were given to us. Uh, we don't jump around from passage to passage and pick out our favorite ones and, and uh, speak to those things while neglecting other passages of Scripture. We just open up the Bible. We, uh, we have a book that we go through. It's First Peter, and we just take it verse by verse. And it's the best way for you to understand the book of the Bible uh, that we go through. It's the best way for you to understand the Word of God in the way that is given to us. And so we make sure that we study it that way. And I just want to remind you of that, why we don't just kind of hop around and, and choose a topic and study it for four weeks and then choose another topic and study it for six weeks and then choose another one and another one, another one, another one. Another reason for that is that would drive me crazy if I had to do that. Um, I would just rather give it to you the way God gave it to us um, through books of the Bible, letters, and so we study those. And we're in 1 Peter, so open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 19 to 22 this morning. But let me just read, um, just to kind of give us a little runway here. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 down to verse 22, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Some of you were alive uh, in the 1980 Winter Olympics uh, when America, the amateur hockey team America, defeated the four-time defending gold medalist and heavily favored USSR. I won't give you a raise of hands to tell me if you witnessed that live or not. Um, I was two, uh, for those of you keeping track. A team that featured a full roster of professional players with significant experience and a U.S. team that had very little experience and was beat already three times by Russia was defeated four to three on a goal in the third period by team captain Mike Aruzioni and led by the legendary coach Herb Brooks. It is proclaimed the greatest victory in sports. And some of you remember the call by Al Michaels, the famous line of Al Michaels during that, that game towards the end. It's now turned into a movie. The famous line was this, do you believe in miracles? The victory over heavily talented team USSR, the greatest sports victory of all time. Some of you guys are like, no, that's not the greatest sports victory of all time. I've got my own list. But it's with victory in mind that we approach this passage. Jesus proclaiming victory over death 
Jesus proclaiming victory over the demons. This con- the context here of this section, verses 18 to 22, is about triumph. It's about exaltation. It's about victory. It's about the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us victory over death. And in 1 Peter 3 then, chapter, or chapter 3, in verses 19 and 20, it is about this, the proclamation of victory over the demons. In verse 22, he ends this section with victory as he has gone into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God and everything is now underneath him. He has victory over all things as he is supreme over all. At the same time, this passage here is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. You probably read it for yourself thinking, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) What in the world does that mean? Yeah, about every sentence in this section is, what in the world does that mean? And scholars debate over and over again, and commentaries are written over and over to decide what does this actually mean. And I could go through all the different arguments for you, uh, but I want you to stay awake this morning, so I won't do that. I will just summarize for you uh, what I believe is the proper interpretation of this section. But it's going to take a little bit of work on your half. It's going to take a little bit more mental engagement maybe this morning. But I want us to understand this passage as it was written to this, these people who are suffering, these people who are persecuted for their faith, these people who are trying to live out their faith in the midst of Nero coming upon them and persecuting them. Peter writes this as an encouragement letter to these suffering Christians. He encourages them to be holy. He encourages them to separate themselves from the world, to to separate themselves from the culture. In the midst of separating themselves from the culture, Peter knew this, that they were going to suffer, and they were going to suffer badly. And so he wanted to remind them, as it says in verse 18, the very first, uh, first sentence there is this, Christ also suffered. You are not alone in your suffering. Christ also suffered. Christ was also insulted. Christ was also the one who suffered at the hands of evil men. Christ even went to the cross, and it was through suffering that eventually was the path to glory. So you are not alone in your suffering. Christ also suffered. It goes on then in verse 18, all the way down to chapter, all the way down to verse 22, to remind you of this that through suffering came victory. That through death on the cross came victory. And because you are in Christ, because you belong to God, you too will have victory through your suffering. Because Christ's victory is your victory. Because it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. Because as it says there in verse 18, it is not my righteousness, it is Christ's righteousness within me. There has been this exchange of of my sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. And because there is Christ's righteousness within me, I have victory through and in Jesus Christ. His triumph is my triumph. My life is hid with Christ on high, and therefore, His victory is my victory. 
And so through your suffering and through, your, through the hardships of life and through the persecution that you're enduring, know this, that at the end of that, there is victory. Not because of you, but because of Christ. Now you remember our outline that we went through here. Last week, we just looked at verse 18, and we saw this, that Christ's victorious death was to bring the unrighteous to God. His victorious death was to bring the unrighteous to God. Verse 18, we saw this, that Christ's death is sufficient once. Christ's death is for sin. It is once for sin. We saw that Christ's death is substitutionary, the righteous for the unrighteous. We saw that Christ's death is successful, that he was made alive in the Spirit. Secondly is this, we want to see this. Secondly is this. Christ's victorious death was proclaimed over demons. It was proclaimed over demons. And then third, we're going to see this, that Christ's victory over death is displayed in the resurrection, the ascension, and in his supreme rule overall. That's verse 22. But let's look at together the second point, which is this. Christ's victorious death was proclaimed over demons. Look at, look at verse 18, the end of it. Look what it says being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ died a real, physical death. Peter's already said this in chapter 2. It says that, that Christ bore himself, verse 24 of chapter 2, bore our sins in his body on the tree. It was a real, physical death that Christ died on the cross. His spirit was made alive. We know this, that the most physical or the most, uh, the most agony that Christ felt on the cross was not the physical death that he endured. The most pain that Christ felt on the cross was the separation that he had from God the Father. It was taking on the full wrath of God. It was Christ on the cross where he would say this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment of death, when his, when his body gave up on him, in that moment, Christ took on the full wrath of God for the sins of the world. That was the most agony that Christ would feel. That was the greatest pain that Christ would feel. Absorbing then the penalty of sin on your behalf. Christ would take it on, but his spirit did not die. Christ did not cease to exist at any moment. He was made alive by the spirit. The soul of the human does not cease to exist either. The body will fail. The body will die. You will die physically, but then comes eternity. Your body, your, your body will fail you, but your soul will continue. Your spirit will continue, and it will either continue in eternity in heaven, or it will continue in eternity, separated from God forever in hell. There, there are only two options. This is true for Christ. His soul did not all of a sudden just cease to exist for three days, and then, then after that, he was, he was made alive. His soul came back and made alive. No, no, his soul always, his spirit always was alive, as your soul, your spirit, will always be alive. It'll either be alive, as I said, with Christ, or alive in eternity, damned to hell. 
And so Christ makes this physical death for the sins of the world, propitiation for the sins of the world. The question is this then, what did Christ do? What did Christ do? What did his spirit do? Well, the text tells us they're being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, verse 19, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. There's a number of interpretive challenges here, but let me just give to you the best solution. Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It says there, verse 19, that he went. In verse 22, it says, he has gone. One saying he went into prisons. The other says he went or he had gone into heaven. It seems as though that there is a a real indication that Christ went somewhere. He was going somewhere. And it says there that he went and proclaimed. That word proclaim there is not the word that is used for evangelism. It's not the word used for defending or sharing the gospel or to preach the gospel. The word there that he, he went and proclaimed in the ancient world, heralds would come to a town as representatives or as rulers. They'd make public announcements. They'd come and in front of a general, in front of the king, in front of the processions, and they would celebrate military triumphs, announcing victories in battle. And this is what God did. This is what Christ did as he went and proclaimed. He, he went and celebrated military triumph. He went and announced victory in battle. He didn't preach repentance. He didn't go to these spirits, these these demons, these spirits. He didn't go to them and offer them a second chance. He didn't go to them and offer them another opportunity at salvation because there are no other opportunities outside the one that you have today. There was no second, second chance for these demons. Salvation is for humanity. Demons had their opportunity. A third of them decided to follow Satan. Satan took them. Once holy angels were now fallen, unregenerate demons. Also, this is not a case for purgatory, in case you were wondering. This is not a place here uh, where the spirits are in prison. I'll I'll give us some understanding of that in a second, but this is not a a case for purgatory, a a place of cleansing, a place where you can be given a second chance after you die. What do we make then of this word? He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What does that mean? These spirits, these, these disobedient ones, as it says there, that they formerly did not obey. These are disobedient angels, disobedient spirits, what do we make of that? Well, first of all, that word disobedient there means this, deliberately disobeyed, consciously resisted, or rebelled against the authority of God. That's who he's talking about. Those who rebelled against made an adamant rejection against the will of God. Peter here has demons in mind, demons who are in 
prison. This word there for prison means this, a special compartment of Hades where these angels that sinned are confined in chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Okay, so you got to think with me here. There's, there's the holy angels. A third of them uh, have decided to break away and follow Satan. Out of that third, there are a select number of demons who have sinned in a unique and special way, which we'll look at here in a second. Those 200 or so demons uh, have been confined in chains into a special place. You say, what in the world did they do to get that sort of torment and that sort of treatment? Well, if you would, look over with me. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 to 10. I told you guys you're going to have to put your thinking cap on. Verse 3, he's given us in 2, sorry, in 2 and verse 4, it says this. Chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He's speaking here of a time that happened during the days of Noah. This is two times now he's speaking of what happened during the days of Noah. These demons who have been committed to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now turn over with me to Jude, to Jude 6. Just before Revelation, to the right in your Bible, just a few pages. Don't look for chapter 6. There is no chapter 6. It's just Jude 6. Verse 5, now I want to remind you, although once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept them in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by their undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. These angels abandoned their proper abode, the freedoms that they were given to them, took on human flesh during the days of Noah. In, you can see this in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. This Nephilim that came from them where this de- certain amount of demons went and cohabitated with humans forming a demonic race on earth. They went outside the natural bounds as he talks about in in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
why would these demons do this? Why would they, they, they make such a, a plan? Well, the whole plan was, is these demons understood this. They understood what was said in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 and 16, that there would be a day when a Messiah would come and he'd crush the head of the serpent. He would destroy Satan. And so these demons said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's take on human flesh. Let's start our own human race and let's wipe out the seed of the Messiah and therefore destroy the line of Christ, therefore not giving Christ an opportunity to destroy the head of the serpent. They left their natural domain. They, they cohabitated with women in the same way as we see in Sodom and Gomorrah after the flood, a, a similar thing. And the whole point was an effort by Satan to destroy the pure line, the seed of Christ, the Messiah, who would one day come to earth and reign and live a perfect life, die for the sins of the world, and therefore redeem back his people and crush the head of the serpents. That was the whole point. The whole point was to pollute and destroy the human race, creating their own human race, if you will. We understand now in Genesis chapter 6 why God would, would say such words as this, that he regretted what he had made. The only way to deal with this then was to wipe out the entire human race, and that's what he did. At the end of chapter 6, immediately you get into chapter 7, and what does he do? He, he wipes out the entire human race except for eight persons, just as it says here, just as we read two other times here. He wipes out and he starts over. He had, to, he had to wipe away this unregenerate human race trying to destroy Christ before he even came. Helps us understand the flood, doesn't it? These demonic beings overstepped their liberty, their ability to come into the world. God had them killed. God had them sent into prison. God had them placed in this holding place, in this, this prison. We know this, that not all are there. We know this. We've seen this all throughout New Testament times where Jesus would cast out demons. We know demons can still roam the earth today. Not all of them are there, but there are a select number that are there. The book of Enoch, which is not inspired word of God, is not part of the canon that we have, talks in greater detail about this. But these demons who came onto the earth, overstepping their liberty then, would be placed in prison and have no more access to humanity. In chains, for eternity, bound up, for what they did. So if you look back then in 1 Peter, it says this, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He went and proclaimed to these spirits in prison when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Peter wants us to understand this, that God was patient even in the days of Noah, he waited 120 years for people to repent. 120 years. He gave them the opportunity to board the ark, an opportunity to be saved and not 
anyone other than the eight. Noah and his family was saved. Everything else was wiped off the face of the earth. Everything else was killed except that which was on the ark, which was Noah and his family and the animals. Those demons trying to destroy humanity, trying to end the line of the Messiah, were brought into prison. What happens next? The line of the Messiah continues for generation after generation after generation until finally we get to the New Testament when Christ shows up. John the Baptist proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would live the perfect life. He would display who he is. He would confirm who he is. He would validate who he is. And the words that he said through miracles, he would go to the cross, dying for the sins of the world, taking on the full punishment of the world, taking on the wrath of God, which we deserve. Christ would take on all of that. In his death, he would turn. He would show up to these demons who tried to have him destroyed before he even showed up. And he looked at them and he said, it is is finished. You are doomed. Christ has won. It is over. The victory is secure. You have lost. Satan, you have been disarmed. The victory is in the hands of the Lord. Any and all attempts to destroy God's plan of salvation has ended. Christ is one on the cross. Look over with me, if you would, in Colossians chapter 2, a similar, a similar passage here in Colossians chapter 2, which speaks of this very thing. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 2. says this in verse 13, verse 14, or verse 13, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What did he do in doing that? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What does he do? He declares his victory over the demons and over Satan. And that's what Peter's reminding them. He's reminding them of this. Hey, look, I know you're suffering. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But let me remind you, Christ has proclaimed victory over those evil spirits that you understand and that you know about far better than we would. Back in the days of Noah, he has gone to them and declared to them, it is over. It is finished. Hang in there. Hang in there. His victory is your victory. Peter, Peter also wants us to understand that if you go back And look what it says. It says this, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, we know this, 120 years, as I said, and that word there, it's it's worthy of, of understanding. It says God's patience waited. 
means this. He means, it means waiting in great anticipation. Waiting in great anticipation, but with patience. In 2 Peter, Peter talks about this. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 and 10, it says this, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What is he saying? He's saying this, God is being so patient with you. God is being so patient, even more so with the unbeliever. He desires that all would come to repentance and to know him, just like in the days of Noah, the patience there that God had, wanting all to enter into the ark. He's reminding them of the patience that that he has even with them, these readers. But at the same time, he wants them to understand this, that the guilty will not go unpunished. That God will judge. Like a thief in the night, he will come. Because we know that after 120 years, God was slow to anger. God was slow and patient with those people. But eventually, the rain would start and the door would be slammed shut on the ark. And there was no more opportunity And God's patience here would be helpful to these believers as they would remember that God does not let the guilty go unpunished as they were getting persecuted for their faith. They'd be encouraged. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. They'd be encouraged by that. That God goes to great lengths to protect his people. God goes to great lengths to provide for his people. Just as he protected and provided for Noah, Through all those years of persecution, he will do the same for you. He keeps going. Hang in there with me. He starts talking now about baptism. Here we go. It's like Peter's got ADD. Squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. He's like, Peter, come on, help me out. Could you be more like Paul a little bit? Just more linear. He says this, while in the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He gives them then this analogy, verse 21, baptism. He gives them an analogy of baptism here. Just as in the days of Noah, the, the waters of baptism symbolized death and judgment. Waters were the agent of death. Similarly then, in baptism, which simply means immersion, to be baptized, baptizo is the word for immersion. In the same way, in immersion, it symbolized being plunged into the water, submerged, displaying the symbol of death. However, believers survive death and the baptismal waters because they are baptized with Christ. Baptized into Christ. 
because they're united by Christ and therefore his life is now within them and it's no longer they, I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You're rescued from the waters of baptism and brought back up to life. That's the picture here. Noah was brought safely through the water in the ark, brought across safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that's what we just talked about, now saves you. Now, don't stop reading there. You just take that out of context and make it say whatever you want, I guess. Put in the context, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, not on the outside, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Keep reading through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you take the thought as a whole, which you should, then baptism then does not save you just because you've got the removal of dirt on the outside. Baptism and the way in which it saves you is in the sense that you are dead with Christ and brought back to life with Christ because Christ has immersed himself into your heart and you have immersed yourself into Christ. And you are raised to life because what? Christ has been raised to life. It's not baptism that saves you. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and faith in him. And so this is a picture then of the symbolism of baptism. You're saved because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ had been in the grave, if Christ does not uh, come back if Christ was not raised to life, then we are all dead in our sins. But thanks be to God, He has defeated death, been resurrected. Because He lives, we live. Alan Stibbs says it like this: says the ark passing safely through the flood provides a figure of God's method of saving men out of inevitable judgment. First, God delayed the day of judgment long enough for an ark to be prepared. Then the souls that went into the ark did not avoid the judgment. Rather, in the ark, they were saved through the very water which drowned others. And because of it, they thus passed out of the old world and into a new world. When they emerged from the ark, they literally found that, that old things had passed away and that all things had become new. The figure is, is fulfilled in Christ. He, he, he was prepared of God to come in the fullness of time. The judgment due to sin and sinners was meanwhile des- delayed. Then the judgment fell upon him as the floodwaters upon the ark. When sinners take refuge in him, they do not avoid the judgment due to sin. They are saved through its falling on Christ. And because of it, instead of meeting their own doom, they are brought safe in him to God. And so the waters then of baptism here are a symbol then of the inward cleaning of the heart based on the work and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not on the outward cleansing of dirt from the skin. This is an inward heart change. Pastor John MacArthur says like this, what saves you? Not water baptism, but immersion into the ark of safety who is Christ. 
in whom you go through the death and burial and resurrection and the judgment of God falls, but it falls on the ark and not on you. What saves you? Not some external ritual or external rite, but a heart longing to be delivered from the crushing burden of sin that plagues your evil conscience and wants to covenant with God to live an obedient life. And it leads you through the judgment, out the other side, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That celebrates, that completes the salvation triumph. And this is what Peter wants his readers to understand. Through this analogy and this picture of the ark, Upon the waters that judgment came, but they were saved through the judgment because they were in the ark. That judgment's going to come, but because you are in Christ, you will be saved from the judgment that is to come. And the victory that, it, that is there because of the resurrection. Which then leads us lastly to this. Number three. Christ's victory over death is displayed in the resurrection, the ascension, and his supreme rule over all. His final thought, Peter's final thought on this. He has to take us back to heaven. Why does he take us back to heaven? Why does he want our thoughts in heaven? Because that's where Christ is now. Christ is reigning supreme over all in heaven. He wants to remind us of that. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, it says that, uh, why are you guys looking around? Christ is not here. He has ascended into heaven. If you look over with me, I want, you, I want to make sure we understand this. If you look over into Hebrews, turn over to Hebrews, if you would, chapter 1. I want you to, I want you to see that the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure we understand where Christ is right now. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Where is Christ? Christ has gone to heaven. It says this, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down, where? At the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Look over in, in chapter 8 in verse 1. Chapter 8 in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who what? Is seated, where? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had suffered... For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. This is where Christ is. He is sitting at the right hand of God. He is reigning and ruling. Everything is underneath Him. 
One more verse. Look over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is happening here? What are you, what are you trying to tell us, Joe? What are, you, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say this, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and God has given to him everything that is on the earth to be in subjection to him, meaning this, your life is to be in submission to Christ. God is over your life. God is over your job. God is over your boss. God is over your suffering. God is over everything that goes on in your life. Christ reigns supreme over everything. There is not nothing that goes on in your life that happens between Sunday and Sunday and every hour and every moment and every minute that Christ is not over. He is over all. And you can trust him with your life. You can trust him with everything that is going on in your life right now. All the persecution, all the hurt, all the joys, all the pain, whatever the situation is in your life, understand this church, Christ is over all of it. And he's victorious. And because Christ is victorious, you will be victorious too. Amen? Christ doesn't rise from the grave, we're all doomed. If Christ isn't in heaven, we're all doomed. But thanks be to God, He rose from the grave and He reigns supreme over everything. And He is worthy, church. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your anxious prayers. He is worthy of your anxious thoughts. Because it's in Christ that we find our ultimate victory. Thomas Schreiner ends this section with this this quote. He says this, The message for Peter's readers is clear. In their sufferings, Jesus still reigns and rules. We just stop right there. In their sufferings, Jesus still reigns and rules. He has not surrendered believers into the power of evil forces, even if they suffer until death. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has triumphed over all demonic forces, and hence, by implication, believers will reign together with him. Believers will reign together with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I understand as I was in this text all week 
how it can be difficult to interpret at times, difficult to understand. It takes a little bit more effort to understand what it is that you're trying to communicate to us this morning as we kind of dive into more of the details of it, Lord. We don't want to forget the big picture, and the big picture is this. You're victorious, and at the end, you win. You win. And because you have triumphed over all, and we belong to you, and our life is hid with Christ on high, we too will be victorious. And I know, Lord, that there are so many, so many that are hurting, so many that are going through suffering, so many that are going through pain. Help them and remind them this week that there is victory through the suffering. Not because of us, but because of Christ. That through this path of hardship, through this path of suffering, through this path of difficulty that you have ordained for our lives, at the end of it, we will reign together with Christ in victory. That's truly the greatest victory of all. And we get to be a part of it. Lord, if there's anybody here who does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, may today be the day where they give their life to you. May today be the day that they open up their heart to you and say, Christ, I want to live for you. Convict their hearts, draw them to you, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and it's in His name we pray. Amen.